0: The folks on the internet all know that last week I taught chapters 30 and 31 from my kitchen table and now I am spoiled, I told the men at men's group last night, that I'm tempted now to just start phoning it in because it was comfortable to just sit at my kitchen table and teach the lesson. But now the snow has gone away, and it was a lovely day in Smyrna, so I ran out of excuses. So we will be in chapter 32 of the book of Isaiah tonight. So nobody say, but that's not where we left off, because I did teach through them. Now I know that I just said that we are going to begin in chapter 32, but if you would, turn to chapter 33, go forward one chapter. Starting at verse two, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we have waited for thee. Be thou their strength every morning, our salvation also in times of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of thyself, nations disperse, and your spoil is gathered. As the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. But the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high, and he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And he shall be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure." That's where I hope to get tonight, is to that concluding comment. But I wanted to start with it just to show you the parallel between that and what we've been studying on Sunday mornings. Paul said to the Ephesians that he prayed that God would share his great wealth of salvation with them and that he would gift them, by his grace, wisdom and knowledge. Paul was not just making that up, he was speaking Textually, when he said that, because all the way back here in Isaiah, Isaiah has already declared that in God there is this wealth of salvation and wisdom and knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is indeed a treasure. So, whether you're looking at the Old Testament, whether you're looking at the New Testament, we recognize that God is the one who brings about salvation. That is not a new invention by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But Isaiah himself declares that God is the God of salvation. Yahweh is the God of salvation. And that he is the one who out of his great abundant overflowing treasures. Brings about salvation and wisdom and understanding. So that is a consistent personality profile of who God is. And what God does. So now back at chapter 32, where we're actually going to begin. Now, this next couple of chapters will continue to sound very familiar to you because these are big overarching themes for the book of Isaiah. You're going to hear tonight again a promise of a glorious future. But this time, as Isaiah talks about a glorious future specifically for Israel, he also talks about this messianic king to come and how that messianic king is going to bring about righteousness and justice in Israel and how refreshing that is going to be to them. And then Isaiah does what Isaiah so frequently does, As he's talking about the glorious future of Israel, he also explains to them again that they're going to have to go through a time of trouble. They're going to go through a time of judgment. God is going to use the nations of this earth in order to judge Israel. So when we look at the history of the world and we see God's chosen people, Israel, and we see all that they've been through, all that they have suffered at the hands of Gentile nations... It's easy after the flesh to start thinking, well, why would God allow his people, his loved people, his elect nation? Why would he let them go through these kind of difficulties and these kinds of troubles? And then people too often conclude that that is evidence that God has given up on them. Instead, Isaiah is going to repeat yet again that it is God's judgment on them to correct them and then bring about this glorious future that he continues to promise them. So Isaiah is going to talk about something that's going to occur within a year of this particular prophecy. Oh, long as I've said this particular prophecy, the reason for the amount of repetition that we see in the book of Isaiah is because the hardness of the Israelites, the hardness of heart of the Jews meant that every time that they heard this message, they would resist it, because Isaiah's message was one of judgment. They didn't like that message. They didn't appreciate that message. And so they were constantly opposed to what Isaiah was saying, and so Isaiah had to continually repeat it, and he saw a series of visions a series of oracles that all said essentially the same thing, which is why the repetition in the book of Isaiah. But this time, as he goes through it, you're going to see him do what he so often does, which is to speak about immediate things. He's going to talk about what's going to happen within a year and then suddenly leap to the the end-of-the-world, eschatological, in-that-day kind of stuff. And to Isaiah, that is part and parcel of one large prophecy. It's only now, as we've lived through these uh, thousands of years here on the planet, that we understand, we recognize that Isaiah had gaps of time between the individual things that he prophesied, but all those things that he has prophesied have come true, which is the guarantee that the future things are going to come true. Does that all make sense? Okay, good. Isaiah 32. Looking forward to the Davidic covenant, the Davidic promise. Someday there's going to be a righteous king who's going to sit on the throne of Judah and Israel. Behold, a king will reign righteously. Now, as Isaiah is saying this, Assyria is battling against the northern tribes and successfully taking the northern tribes into captivity. The northern tribes have had a series of kings, a succession of bad kings, kings who did not rule righteously, kings who did not rule according to the law of God. And so Isaiah predicts there is a righteous king coming. And so to the northern tribes, that would have been a wonderful promise of hope. In the south, they have had a succession of alternately good and bad kings. Every once in a while, they'd have kings who didn't follow the law of God. Every once in a while, they'd have some that did, but even the best of them were just men and would still have their faults. So the promise of a coming king who would finally deal righteously was a promise of great comfort to Israel and to Judah, because if you were a common person, living in Israel, and a neighbor had wronged you, if something had happened, something had been stolen, someone had lied on you, you would go to the authorities and ultimately to the king, expecting the king to judge righteously and to solve the dilemmas between you and your neighbor. But all too often, as we've seen through Proverbs, as we've seen through Isaiah, there is this constant drumbeat telling the kings to make sure to treat the poorly fairly. Treat the people who don't have the ability to give you any wealth, to bribe you, to make things any better for you. Make sure that you treat them fairly and justly. And all too often, those poor people would not get righteous judgment because the people who could afford to buy off a judge or buy off the king would get the king to judge in their favor. And so this promise of there's a righteous king coming and he's going to judge righteously would be a tremendous relief to the people of Israel. So much so that now Isaiah launches into several examples of relief to compare it to having a righteous king. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and the princes, the ones who rule under that king, will rule justly, righteously, appropriately, according to the law of God, and each will be like a refuge from the wind. If you're outside in the desert and the hot wind is constantly blowing at you and on you, it's going to become unbearable eventually. It's going to dry out your skin. It's going to make you hot and uncomfortable. And then if you find some place, some rock, some tree you can stand behind, some place where you can get refuge from the wind, that's that kind of moment. And Isaiah says, that's what it's going to be like when you finally get a king that rules righteously. It's like a shelter from a storm if you're outdoors, especially in the desert, and a storm comes up, or even a windstorm with a sandstorm, if there's just inclement weather beating down against you, if you can find shelter, if you can get under some kind of roof, if you can find a safe place, again, that's the kind of moment. And so Isaiah says, like a shelter from a storm is that righteous king like streams of water in a dry country. Again, Middle East, desert, you're going through a dry country, you're really dying of thirst, you're really looking for something to drink, and there's a stream, suddenly you find water. Ah, good, I've got some relief. One more example. It's like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. You're out in a desert territory. You're out in the wilderness and the sun is just beating down on you. That's why Middle Eastern folks, Bedouin folks, would wear robes even in the heat out in the desert so that they would have something to cover their bodies from the heat of the sun scorching against them. And then in the midst of that kind of scorching, if you can find shade, (sighs) it's just such a relief. So that's what it's going to be like when Israel finally gets this long-awaited, long-promised king. A king who rules righteously. Princes who will judge justly, appropriately, fairly. No matter how rich or poor you are, that's going to be an enormous relief to the people who have been under the scorching heat and the storm and the dry country of the condition that they are already living in with unjust judges that take bribes, that don't treat people fairly. But then beyond that, just so we get some idea of the time frame of when this righteous king is going to show up, just so that we don't start thinking, well, righteous king, that would be somebody in the past. Josiah was a good king, maybe that's referring to him just so you understand that it isn't referring to any of the kings of Israel so far, the conditions will then be, verse 3, that the eyes of those who see will not be blinded. Isaiah has already told us, and we saw it repeated by Paul in the book of Romans, that God purposefully blinded the eyes, stopped the ears of Israel, of the Jews, so that they wouldn't understand. Paul picked it up and said, a partial blindness has happened to Israel, but that God was the one who did it. So Israel continues to abide in this inability to hear and this blindness and inability to see spiritual things. That's why Jesus so often said, those who have ears, let them hear because most of Israel was incapable of hearing, but there's going to come a time when nationally God is going to open their eyes, they're going to see their Savior, they're going to recognize him whom they have pierced, and then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the hasty, people who are very quick to Make up their mind. They don't consider things. They're very quick to speak and to form an opinion. Instead, he says, the mind of the hasty will discern the truth. That's the chief reason that people don't understand the truth is because they're not willing or not capable of just sitting down and understanding it and thinking about it and pondering on it and considering it. But the time is coming within Israel when the mind of the hasty will discern the truth And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. So there is even this healing, this physical healing, but also this spiritual healing where people who couldn't speak the truth before are going to have the ability to understand and speak righteousness and truth because their eyes are no longer blinded. Their ears are finally able to hear and listen to the commands of God Are they today, are the Jews today in a state of being able to recognize their savior, understand the truth when they hear it? Are they quick to also tell it? The answer is no. The majority remain in the blinded state that Paul describes. And so we know this day hasn't come yet. This hasn't happened yet. And so this promise of a righteous king who's going to come hasn't happened yet. It is that Davidic promise. It is that Davidic covenant. It is that longed-for kingdom that Israel has been promised and promised, and they are still waiting for it. No longer, says verse 5, will the fool be called noble, nor the rogue be spoken of as generous. Now, the next couple of verses... He's going to describe what he means when he says a fool and what he means when he says a rogue. The particular Hebrew word that is translated rogue actually means to be greedy. Most of the dictionaries that I have looked at to understand this word also use this very good, very accurate English word that has been part of the English language for like 400 years or more. It's a great word. It's a really, really good word. It's the ideal word for describing this Hebrew word that is translated rogue. The problem is we're not allowed to use that word anymore. It's N-I-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y. And you're not allowed to say that out loud even though it has a very definite meaning, it means a penny pincher. It means someone who is very greedy. But if you say it out loud, people think that you've used a racial epithet. Mm. And so, since there have even been senators who have used that word from the floor and then been censured for it, I will avoid using that word, except that it's the perfect word to explain what the meaning is of this word that is translated rogue. It means not generous. Someone who is amassing to themselves but then won't give anything to anybody. So the contrast is that that kind of person would be spoken of as generous. So no longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. In other words, right now, When I say right now, in Isaiah's time, right then, everything was upside down. Right then, fools were in positions of nobility. Right then, people who were greedy, who would amass wealth to themselves, who would take a bribe, who wouldn't judge righteously, who were all about money and all about themselves, those were the very people that would also promote themselves as generous. It also happens in Jesus' own time, when he talks about the Pharisees who, when they would give, would blow a trumpet and make a big deal of the, the couple of cents that they might put into the treasury at the temple. So that people would say, gee, that guy's dressed in all this finery and he's got all this wealth and power, but he makes a big deal of trying to show how generous he is. So that was true in Isaiah's time as well. So God is saying someday when there are righteous judges, all of that upside down stuff is going to be made right. Verse 6 then describes what a fool actually is. For a fool speaks nonsense. No sense. Speaks not sensibly. Speaks in a way that makes no sense. That is what a fool is, and his heart inclines toward wickedness. That's the proclivity of his life and his thinking. He's constantly thinking toward what kind of evil, what kind of wickedness he can do. And he is not steered toward righteousness, because that would take the implantation of God in a person to steer them from their own wicked hearts toward righteousness, but they remain in their wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. So they're not afraid to speak about God, but the things they speak about God are mistakes, are errors, are incorrect. Is it worth pointing out that there are still people today like that who are still willing to talk about God like they know what they're talking about, but they still say things that are completely in error, but they're not afraid to do it. Why? Because they're fools. That's how fools are defined. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty so they speak nonsense, their hearts inclined to wickedness, they practice ungodliness, they speak error against the Lord, They keep the hungry person unsatisfied rather than giving the hungry person what he needs and they withhold drink from the thirsty. Okay, that is all definitional of what a fool is and why he would say that a fool being called nobility is all upside down. It's all wrong. It's all incorrect. Verse 7 says, as for a rogue, as for that greedy person, as for that N-I-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y person his weapons are evil he devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted by slander even though the needy one speaks what is right so there's the situation you've got somebody who is in genuine need and what they're saying is correct what they're saying is right and yet, the rogue will seek to destroy that person who is afflicted. And the way that he will destroy them is by slandering them. That's why Solomon, the book of Proverbs, has so much to say about the damage people do with their mouths. The damage that people do when they slander other people, when they speak too quickly, when they speak ill-thought-out words. Well, that's what this greedy person will do in order to destroy the person who is afflicted, who is also in the right. And if they were to admit that that afflicted person was right, that proves that they're wrong. And they can't be wrong, so instead, they slander the right. That's also going on today. Gee, this all sounds very current, doesn't it? As for the rogue, his weapons are evil, he devises wicked schemes. To destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But by contrast, verse 8, but the noble man devises noble plans. In other words, just like Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit, you can tell people by what they do. You can tell by their behavior, noble, genuinely noble people, people who are noble of heart and mind, will therefore do noble things. It's part of who they are. The noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans, he stands. That's his reputation. He's willing to stand on the things he does because they're the right things. They're the correct things. Verse 9. Now verse 9 starts, another section of this chapter where Isaiah is now going to speak to the women who are at ease, the women who are wealthy in Jerusalem, the women who think that the life that they're living is just going to continue in the same fashion and they don't realize that within a year... They are going to be the very ones who are wearing sackcloth and ashes and beating their breasts as they moan over what has happened to Jerusalem and to the cities surrounding them. So here's Isaiah saying, yes, you're living at ease. Sure, you've got lots of wealth. You've got plenty to eat. You've got great finery. You've got good clothes. But that's all about to change. And you don't even know it. You're so busy being full of your luxury, you have no idea what's right around the corner. And here I am, the prophet of God, telling you to repent, to get ready. It's coming. Now, that's why I began tonight by saying, at the moment that Isaiah is prophesying this, the Assyrian armies are busy beating up on the northern tribes and taking them into captivity, and they get to right within a mile of the gates of Jerusalem and they have conquered most of the cities surrounding Jerusalem out in the plains around Jerusalem and so this judgment is coming and so Isaiah is warning them again rise up you women who are at ease in other words you're laying around get up it's time to pay attention rise up you women who are at ease And hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. That word complacent means you're not giving it any thought. You're not paying attention. I'm right here telling you the truth. I'm giving you a warning directly from God. And you don't seem to care. You've got to get up. You've got to pay attention. Do not be complacent daughters of Israel. For the vintage is ended... The vintage is referring to the grapes that are coming from the vineyards. He's saying that's all going to end. In your luxury, you're laying around on couches, in your finery, drinking your wine. That's all coming to an end. Mm -hmm. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters. For the vintage is ended And the fruit gathering will not come. The word fruit is added by the translators. It means the ability to go out and gather grapes to keep the wine going. Wine was a symbol of plenty. It was a a symbol of having something to drink, but also having comfort, also living a good life. Wine was an essential part of feasts and festivals. And Isaiah is saying that's all coming to an end. And he mentions within a year and a few days. And so you can read different commentaries. And people will say this appears to be the Assyrian armies that are on their way in at that moment. That seems to be a date stamp for when this particular prophecy from Isaiah was spoken and written. The vintage is ended. The fruit gathering will not come terrible you women who are at ease there's the contrast you're at ease you think nothing's wrong you think it's just going to be the same every day and it's about to get terrible and you don't even know it and I'm here telling you and you're laughing at me because I'm just that prophet of God so why should you pay attention be troubled you complacent be upset be worried be concerned this is actually happening You complacent people. Strip, undress, and put sackcloth on your waist. Sackcloth and ashes is a sign of repentance and a sign of woe, a sign of sadness and mourning before God. He's saying you're dressed in your finery now, but you'd be wise to take all that off and put some sackcloth on, and get down before God. Put your face in the dirt before him, and repent before him. Verse 12, beat your breasts for the pleasant field and for the fruitful vine. Okay, so if you have to be woeful over the pleasant field, then that means that there's going to be a time when you can't Go out into the field and collect the harvest and collect the grain and make your food and make your bread. And that, by the way, is exactly what happened as the Assyrian armies were conquering outside the walls of Jerusalem. That's where all the plains were. That's where the fruitful plains were. That's where they would go to gather. That's where they would. Well, they weren't able to do that once the Assyrian army was right outside the gate. And so, mourn over that. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields and for the fruitful vine. For the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. If there's nobody out there who's actually tending to the fields, who's actually tending to the vineyards, then naturally there's going to be briars, there's going to be thorns that are going to come up and choke away the good food and the good vines. So be mournful over that. For the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up and yea, beat your breast, be in mourning for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city. Right now, it's a happy place to live. You're living a life of luxury. You're jubilant and happy. You're willing to play your instruments and dance around with your timbrels. It's fine right now, but the time is coming when you're going to be in extreme woe over what happens to your city, to the food to the vineyards, to the pleasant fields, you're going to be in sackcloth and ashes. A time of trouble is coming. Also, mourn over the palace because it has been abandoned and the populated city has been forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever and a delight for wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Okay, now we have to talk about that a little bit. Since it's talking about Jerusalem, and since it's saying that the palace of the king has been abandoned, and the populated city has been forsaken, he's probably now leaped past the Assyrians to the fact that the Babylonians are coming. and He's moving forward in time to the fact that they will be displaced completely. But then it also says that the hill and the wash tower have become caves forever. Steve, you had some Hebrew training. Can you pronounce that? I'm sorry, I write in hieroglyphics. Um, Is that any better for you? So the way to pronounce that word would be odd. And now you can say, hey, look what Jim wrote on the board. That's odd. (laughs) That is the word that is translated forever here. And that gives you the impression, if you're just reading it in the English... That gives you the impression that God has just said that Jerusalem is going to be abandoned forever, that the hill and the watchtower will become caves forever, a place full of wild donkeys and just a pasture for the flocks. And we know that that's not the case, that even at this moment, Jerusalem is still occupied. And so we have to talk about that little word. Now, you know that there are no vowels in the Hebrew language. This word has to serve a whole lot of functions. The Greek language is a fairly full and complex language. I don't mean complex like difficult. I mean complex like very full, very rich. Whereas the Hebrew language is a much simpler language. And as a consequence, combinations of consonants like what I've got on the board end up serving as a great many different things, and you have to determine the meaning based on the context. So this word forever, if you were to look up chad in Strong's concordance, let's say, you'd find that it has four different definitional references. 5703, 5704, 5705, 5706, and actually it comes up in 5707 and 5708. And it means things like terminus or for a duration in a sense of advance or perpetuity. I'm reading right from Strong's at the moment. It can also mean old. It can also mean perpetually, or it can mean world without end, depending on the context. And then it can mean as far as. It can be a space of time or a duration. It can also mean, importantly, until. So it doesn't have to mean eternally without end. It can sometimes mean until. Here, I'll prove it to you. Read the very next verse. Verse 15 begins with the word, Until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high. So the city is going to be abandoned. The hill and the watchtower have become caves forever or for a duration. A delight to wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Until the spirit. And you know what word is translated by the word until here? Exact same word. So you have to determine by the context what the meaning of God is at any particular point. Now the NASB, the first time that they translated that word, went with forever. And just three words, four words later, they translated it until. So there's this contextual preference that they show. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily the proper translation. Because what it seems to mean is that it is going to remain for a duration in this state where the hill and the watchtower have become caves and a delight to wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. When does that happen? When does God pour out the Spirit from on high on Israel, on the Jews? It's the same thing that Zechariah explains. That they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to weep over him like a mother weeps over her only child. It's the same thing that Jeremiah 31 says. When God says that he's going to put his spirit in them. And when he does, no man is going to have to say, know the Lord. Because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. So there is this promise from all the prophets that a day is coming when there's going to be this great spiritual awakeness within Israel. The kind of awakeness that was described back in verse 3. Their eyes are going to be unblinded. Their ears are going to be able to listen. They're going to be able to discern the truth. Even the stammerers are going to be quick to speak clearly and tell the truth about God. That spiritual awakening, according to the time frame that we're looking at here in Isaiah, and the sequence that Isaiah has laid out, that happens after they have gone through a time of forsaken first there's the time of punishment first there's the time of them being taken out of their land and even Jerusalem becoming a cave for a duration delight to wild donkeys an abandoned area verse 15 until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high Isaiah is so sure that that's coming he's so sure it's happening That he predicts that the time is coming when the spirit from on high is going to be poured out. Jesus walks on the planet, says to his apostles that when he goes away, he's going to pray to God and God is going to send the promised spirit, that spirit of truth. And he's going to be in you and he's going to be with you and he's going to abide with you. And that is the beginning of the new covenant and the promise of the spirit coming and indwelling people so that they can have open eyes and open ears and comprehend the things of God. So when Jesus said it, he was just reciting what Isaiah had already said, what all the prophets have said, that this time of national awakening is coming until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field. He just said to the women who were in luxury that they were to put on sackcloth and ashes, beat their breasts for the pleasant fields, meaning that the pleasant fields were going to be destroyed. Now God says that the wilderness is going to become a pleasant field, a fertile area. And the fertile field is going to be considered like a forest. It's just going to grow so much. And then... Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. That's why the chapter began with there's a righteous king coming and when he comes, he's going to be this great satisfaction. He's going to be this great moment of relief. He's going to be this great Ah, finally, he's here, the king who's going to rule in righteousness. But now we know when this king who rules in righteousness is going to appear. It's after the time of God's judgment against Israel and Judah, which begins with Assyria. A year from now, he just told the women, a year and a few days from now, this is going to start. And it's going to continue until the king of righteousness shows up. And the king of righteousness shows up when God pours out his spirit on all of Israel so that none of them will have to teach their neighbor or say, know the Lord because they'll all know me from the greatest to the least. That's all part of the process that began at Assyria conquering Israel and is still going on to this very day as the northern tribes are still scattered And as the Jews are still blinded to who their Messiah is, it's happening right now at this very moment in the world. And yet the promise is that the day is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on them. They're going to be quickened. They're going to be awakened. They're going to recognize righteousness and the work of righteousness that brings about peace between them and God. And the service of righteousness, when they act in righteousness, that's going to bring quietness and confidence forever in Israel Because they will no longer have to worry that the fool and the rogue are in charge. Mm. See how it all fits together? Then my people will live, says verse 18, then my people will live in a peaceful habitation. Is Israel a particularly peaceful place right now? No, not so much. Not so much. But the promise is that my people, he's referring to Israel, will live in a peaceful habitation, and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. And it will hail down when the forest comes down, and the city will be utterly laid low. So you get the idea, that happens first. That all has to occur, so when it occurs, don't think that it's God abandoning you. Theologically, for us Gentiles, don't think that it's God utterly giving up on Israel. What it is, is the plan of God being worked out in time. It will hail down when the forests come down, and the city will be utterly laid low. But how blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, and who let out freely an ox and a donkey. What that's saying is they're going to live in such peace that they don't have to worry about letting their wild animals go, because nobody's going to steal them, nobody's going to take them. It's all going to be fine, and when they plant near the waters, everything's going to grow. There's going to be plenty of food. Woe to you, starts chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed. This is God now handing out judgment against the fools and against the greedy. And against the people who didn't judge in righteousness. Now God is going to judge them. Woe to you, O destroyer. That's your characteristic, you destroy. Woe to you, while you were not destroying. And he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you shall finish destroying, you shall be destroyed. And as soon as you shall cease dealing treacherously, others shall deal treacherously with you. And then by contrast, verse 2. This is where we began the evening. O Lord, be gracious to us. When Isaiah speaks in the plural like that, us, who is he talking about? Israel. You don't have to whisper. You don't even have to mouth it like that. It's okay. He's talking to Israel. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us because we have waited for thee. You know, I'm waiting for Jesus to return. I'm waiting for that moment when the unrighteousness that's going on in the world right now and the warfare that's going on in the world now all ceases because the Prince of Peace actually returns to the planet and rules over them with his rod of iron. While they're busy saying, peace, peace, and there is no peace, finally the Prince of Peace is going to come, and he's going to judge them first, and then he's going to bring about his kingdom, and righteousness is going to dwell on the earth because that king who judges righteously is finally going to be here. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. Can you imagine, after everything that Israel has been through, starting from their deliverance from Egypt and getting into their promised land, and then having the split between the northern and the southern tribes, and having their succession of bad kings, and having the enemy nations come down on them, and and going into the Assyrian captivity, and then being scattered, and then going into Babylon, and then having to come back and rebuild their walls and rebuild their temple, and then it gets knocked down yet again, and then finally they have an Edomian king who builds them a temple that isn't even the temple that they were expecting as they looked forward to Ezekiel's Temple to come. They've been, my point is, they've been waiting. They are really waiting because the whole time that's been happening, they've had these promises. These promises are right in front of them. And it hasn't happened yet. And so Isaiah says, We're waiting. We're waiting for you. Be gracious to us because we're waiting for you. Be thou our strength every morning and our salvation also in our times of distress at the sound of the tumult people flee but at the lifting up of yourself nations disperse the nations that come against Israel the solution is not going to be make a deal with Egypt the solution is not going to be make a deal with surrounding Gentile nations It's not going to be their military might, it's not going to be their horses, it's not going to be their chariots. The solution is going to be that God himself is going to fight for Israel and fight for Jerusalem, and when he lifts himself up in order to come to the defense of Jerusalem, the nations are going to run away, they're going to flee. And you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and you read that when Jesus comes back, The people that are left on the planet whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life run to the rocks and the caves and the dens and say fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Same thing. It's the same thing that Isaiah is predicting. When God finally lifts himself up to do the very things that he has promised to do it's going to be a terror to the nations who have been enemy to him all this time. Our salvation also in the time of distress. That's who you are. At the sound of tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. And your spoil is gathered. This is interesting. Because it can be read one of two ways, and I'm going to give you the version that I think is correct. That those peoples left on the planet, who are still seeking after riches, are going to come after the spoil of God's destruction over the nations. They're going to be like, caterpillars that come and chew up the leaves. They're just going to come trying to gather everything they can. Like locusts rushing about. Men are going to rush about on it. Men are going to go, oh good, riches, because you know these people are dead and they've left behind all this stuff. They're going to be like insects. They're going to be like locusts clamoring for the spoil that's left behind after God lifts himself up. Verse 5, but the Lord, Yahweh, is exalted, for he dwells on high. And he has filled Zion, who is Zion? Jerusalem. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Notice that it's in the past tense. He began chapter 32 by saying, a king is coming, a righteous king. The same way that David writes in Psalm 2, God says, I have already placed my king in Zion. He is already determined to do this, and as far as he's concerned, it's already accomplished. It's past tense. He's done it. And he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness that has not occurred yet, but it absolutely has to, or the word of God is not true. And we can close our books and just all go home and spend the rest of whatever we've got left in our lives knowing that God doesn't tell the truth. But, if God doesn't change and is in fact faithful to every word that he says, the same God who says, my word will not return unto me void, but will accomplish that that I sent it to, that same God has made all these promises of a king and a kingdom to Israel and to Judah and the end result is going to be righteousness for them they've been waiting, they've been anticipating it And even while Jesus was on the planet, he was talking about the gospel of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. And even after his resurrection for 40 days, he was with his apostles talking about the kingdom. And that's why they would say, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? They're still waiting. They were waiting. Come on, just do it. He said, not yet, not yet. It's coming, not yet. So we right here, right now, are living in a period of time between what we see promised by all the prophets that is verified by Jesus and Paul and we haven't seen it come to its fruition yet. We're living in that period of history between the multiple promises and the ultimate fruition of it. And I just think that's an interesting time to be alive because the world right now is just becoming more and more unjust. The world right now is becoming more and more godless. The world right now is becoming more and more insane. And fools are being called noble. And that's happening on the planet right now. And that's exactly what the Bible describes. Because the only way that's all going to be set right is when the king of righteousness comes. And I, for one, can't wait. Mm. Got it? Got it. Another good chapter in Isaiah. Any questions? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. <clears throat> goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message we encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.